COVID is over, as far as we know it, at least. So what did we learn, and what's next? Later, the news. Gay blood donations are a go, finally. Wind power in the UK, social media guidelines, millions for black farmers, and water report cards, and more. But first, I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is Science for People Who Give a Shit. The newsletter features the most important science news, how to think about it, and what the hell you all can do about it. Hit subscribe right now to get this newsletter and my conversations with the world's smartest people every single week. You can find the email version and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com or in your show notes. It's May 12th, 2023. Here's your weekly action steps or the shit you can do. Number one, discover which websites are harvesting your data using the Markup's Blacklight tool. Number two, prepare your home for wildfire using resources from the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. Number three, ensure everyone everywhere receives access to quality healthcare by donating to Partners in Health. And number four, with SNAP benefits getting rolled back by evil people, please make sure more people have access to food and you can volunteer with or donate to Feeding America. And now, today's big question. COVID has ended. Question mark? At least, the way more influential on the past three years of your life than you can possibly imagine COVID public health emergency has ended. Let's take a quick status check. One week after the World Health Organization also called it quits on the COVID global health emergency, SARS-CoV-2, the actual virus, and COVID, the disease, are very much still out there, though thankfully and drastically reduced in severity for most folks. Most folks is folks who've been vaccinated who knows how many times now, exposed a bazillion times, infected, tested positive, tested negative, fucking tested positive again, folks who've taken at least one course of Paxlovid because it works for them, rinse and repeat. For the minority of millions of immunocompromised folks, COVID remains just as dangerous as ever. And they have much less of an idea of where it is than ever before. Because broadly, we have no real idea how many cases there are, nor levels of transmission. Most people aren't testing. No one who is testing is reporting it. And as of today, the CDC can't make health departments collect or report what data they do get. So, what do we know? Well, we know U.S. deaths have recently dropped from 4,000 a week in January to 1,000 a week in mid-May, which is fantastic news, full stop. And yet, 1,000 deaths a week means a minimum of 50,000 people a year killed. Again, just this year, minimum. Leaving the disease a top seven killer of Americans, mostly the elderly and medically vulnerable. It was basically three years ago today that I pulled my kids out of school. If I told you three years ago that COVID would directly and indirectly kill a couple million people and then plateau into a new top seven cause of death, would you have believed me? What would you imagine this day would look like and feel like? You may or may not be ready for it, but it is here. The government has postponed the end of the public health emergency more times than I've rescheduled cleaning out my shed. 
or my attic. And a lot of folks and businesses and governors would very much like to move on. So here we are. Today, I want to help you understand not just specifically what policies and rules changed this week, it's going to be a little technical, and how those changes will affect you, but also how fundamental these things have been to everyday life the past three years, and how, not unlike the Patriot Act in 2001, we've normalized the best and the worst of them. So let's make a list here of what's changing. Everybody loves a list. It's pretty straightforward. It's like Axios meets, well, what used to be BuzzFeed. Number one, the CDC is no longer tracking local levels of transmission. That means tens of thousands of fax machines are out of jobs, and so is the CDC director. Number two, vaccine mandates for federal workers and healthcare workers have ended. Vaccine requirements for international travels are gone. Hospitals will no longer get extra dough when they take care of COVID patients. Free at-home COVID tests from the government are over. Tests ordered by a health professional, though, are still covered under Medicare, but I don't think your visit to the doctor is. You got to check with them. Medicaid coverage for tests continues until September 2024. Private insurers are no longer required to cover up to eight at-home tests per month. And speaking of Medicaid, Medicaid slash CHIP working restrictions are back in effect and continuous enrollment, which was super successful, is ending. Food assistance and SNAP benefits are being rolled back, again, because people are evil. And of course, as I wrote in last week's uh, members-only top-of-mind post you can find online, Title 42 has been lifted uh, literally right now. So here's what's not changing for now, or as far as we know. Number one, COVID vaccines and treatments are still available for free for now. So the government-funded stockpiles of shots which were purchased for about $21 a shot. Everybody know, you buy in bulk. It's like they went shopping at Costco and then they were provided to all of us for free. Those are probably gonna run out this fall. And then they'll go through the same process as any other vaccine. And they'll project it to cost about $110, $130 each. Thanks to the Consolidated Appropriations Act, telehealth will subsist mostly as is until December, 2024. The prescription of controlled medications via telehealth, with that means without an in-person visit, will continue for another six months or so. Medicare and Medicaid coverage for mental telehealth has been extended or made permanent, including how many private insurers uh, cover treatment. You've probably done it via video, audio, text, chat. Again, it's America, though, so insurers will adjust those rates and try to screw you over time. Here's how all of this is going to affect everyone. So much of my job is helping people understand that our problems are just choices we've made and that we can make different choices individually and as a society, turning vast, seemingly intractable problems into foundational, society-changing opportunities. We failed so many tests when COVID arrived and responded by testing policies and programs that might never have been otherwise politically feasible. Some of the most successful, like the child tax credit, have already gone away. And this formal end of the COVID public health emergency will undo many more of them. But of course, we can't just go back to 2019, nor should we want to. But our people and our politics and our policies have changed irrevocably. And systems that were teetering on the edge before COVID, from 
nursing to public transportation to voting rights, those are in very deep shit. Now, let's explore two big ones. One, it's helpful to understand that more than one in four Americans are currently on Medicaid. That's the highest it's ever been. So the aforementioned changes may lead to 17 million newly uninsured people by May 2024. From KFF, between February 2020 and March 2023, Medicaid enrollment grew by an estimated 20 million people, contributing to declines in the uninsured rate, which dropped to the lowest level on record in early 2022. But here's the thing. Many of those people were uninsured before COVID. And I hate to frame it this way, but here it goes. There are incredibly few silver linings from a pandemic that has killed millions and millions of people, deprived millions more of loved ones, caregivers, and that has devastated frontline workers across the healthcare field. But since 2010, when 41 states and counting, including DC, started taking that sweet, sweet Obamacare Medicaid expansion money. And since 2020, as the pandemic emergency Medicaid support kicked in, tens of millions of people got health insurance for the first time. Losing it now over the next year will make life much, much more difficult. It is criminally unsurprising that the disadvantaged and historically marginalized will get hurt the worst. Here's part number two. Our data efforts were eventually built around lagging indicators, as they call them, like positive tests. You go to one of these places, take the test, drive through Dodger Stadium, whatever. Eventually, you could do it at home. The whole thing was terrible. I don't want to rehash it all, but in case you've forgotten, the pandemic hit after decades of slashed budgets for health departments everywhere. Um, number two, for the first two years of the pandemic, our institutions dropped the ball in a very big way on making testing accurate accessible, and affordable. Number three, we gave up on contact tracing very quickly. That's a vital public health tool that has worked since, and I'm not kidding, the plague. Number three, none of our data systems talk to each other because it's pen and paper. Uh, number four, as opposed to the UK, US health data sharing is actually opt-in. So now we're gonna have even less lagging data, which will make it more difficult to track and assess the risk of new variants. And there is some good news on the data front. Let me get through this part first. The point is, if you combine these factors, tens of millions of folks losing their health insurance over the next year, and thus their health care options, and two, a lack of data around who is infected with and transmitting whatever COVID variants, there will be significantly more stress than there is even right now on our brittle, understaffed healthcare systems. And there isn't a single one of us that will not feel that stress. You might say, shouldn't those systems be rebuilding since we have all of these shots and these treatments that are free for hopefully another six months? First, it's pretty important to understand that the vaccines, yes, have saved millions and millions of lives, but not enough people got them and nowhere near enough people got boosters, especially the people who had access to them. We have actually lost more people to COVID since vaccines became available to all adults than we did before that. Second, COVID doesn't always end in death. In fact, it usually doesn't. Yes, it's obviously way more deadly to a single person than the flu, but it won't kill the vast majority of people. It might, however, make you really sick or 
even just sick enough to miss work. Maybe you get paid sick leave. Maybe you don't. That's the USA. But COVID does obviously kill too. And it's left hundreds of thousands of children to grieve the loss of caregivers or grandparents or sometimes the same thing. This generation of children, the same generation who practices, you know, administering first aid to one another in case a mass murderer kicks down their first grade classroom door, whose parents struggle every day to find or pay for childcare or preschool or food or internet access at home, they're going to be affected in every conceivable way. And finally, some unknown millions of people, including parents and caregivers and young people, have been left with some version of long COVID, this post-viral nightmare we're apparently aching to minimize and forget. In April, Ed Yong returned to his post at The Atlantic after an understandable hiatus, and he wrote this. Almost every aspect of long COVID serves to mask its reality from public view. Its bewilderingly diverse symptoms are hard to see and measure, and at its worst can leave people bed or housebound, disconnected from the world. And although milder cases allow patients to appear normal on some days, they extract their price later in private. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. For these reasons, many people don't realize just how sick millions of Americans are, and the invisibility created by long COVID symptoms is being quickly compounded by our attitude toward them. Now look, we've actually made some strides in understanding long COVID. But on the surface, because it manifests in so many different and unpredictable ways, it's drastically more difficult to identify people who have it on the surface. There's no single test for long COVID, 
And some of the studies and surveys we have done using traditional measurements have ended up diminishing the condition, devaluing the stories of those unable to do even more than an hour of work a day, or even walk around the block. So if we can establish a baseline measurement tool, we cannot count these folks, if they want to be counted at all, for fear of shaming on social media, or issues with insurance, or at the workplace, or all of those things. But it turns out that's a sociological condition we are used to here. One last run from Ed. Disability is often a secret we keep. Laura Malden, a sociologist who studies disability, told Ed, one in four Americans has a disability. One in 10 has diabetes. Two in five have at least two chronic diseases. In a society where health issues are treated with intense privacy, those prevalence statistics, like the one in 10 figure for long COVID, might also intuitively feel like overestimates. Next up, where you're going to feel it, immigration. Here's some context. If you're unfamiliar with Title 42, it's the horrendously inhumane emergency immigration policy conveniently used by both the Trump and Biden administrations to immediately shun and expel migrants and typically allowed asylum seekers coming from countries where a serious contagion was present, as the New Yorker put it. Wouldn't you know, there was a pandemic, which is defined as a widespread occurrence of an infectious disease over a whole country or the world at a particular time. So, yeah, basically the policy has been, you know, sorry, we're closed. Title 42 is why we have record unemployment rates and rising wages, and yet not enough workers to go around, much less in the occupations and industries where we feel their absence the very most. And that's just right now. With falling fertility rates everywhere, we have to build a new workforce for the future with every tool we have. I've written ad nauseum about how we're short millions of nurses, electricians, and home care workers, and more. And people go, where are they? It's almost as if 2 million extra people died from COVID, with COVID, from overdoses, cars, guns, and from being unable to seek ongoing or emergency care for other shit because of COVID. It's as if many millions more retired, and it's as if a couple million additional immigrants that would have usually entered the country and found work doing these exact jobs never made it through. That's where they are. Of course, some migrants did make it through. Border facilities have been overwhelmed for quite a while, but the luckiest of those are still waiting anywhere from four to 10 years to make it through the courts. With the public health emergency over, Title 42 is over too. Sort of. For all of his empathy and meaningful wins, Joe Biden and Congress have failed to build any sort of cohesive, meaningful immigration plan to take on the many, many people who want and need to come to this country and who we need to come. And that's before climate migration really even gets going. There's never, ever been a better moment for us to recruit, train, and put to work millions of new immigration attorneys and judges to set to work the millions of new folks who could drastically improve our fundamental frontline and service workforce. And that's before climate migration really even gets going. There's never, ever been a better moment for us to recruit, train, and put to work millions of new immigration attorneys and judges to set to work the millions of new folks who could drastically improve our fundamental frontline and service workforce. We need them. But as of right now, the situation on the border just isn't getting any better or humane. 
Here's what my friend Isaac Saul at Tangle wrote about the new policies this week. They will automatically reject asylum seekers who illegally cross into the U.S. without first seeking asylum protections in one of the countries they travel through. This is a change to the United States' long-time policy, which allowed migrants to seek asylum regardless of whether they cross the border illegally. The U.S. will also change rules to allow more migrants to be sent back to Mexico and impose severe penalties, like a five-year ban on re-entry, for those who cross illegally. Look, it's bad. It's shitty. It's probably illegal. It's inhumane. It's going to be a crisis. It's self-defeating. And with climate change, it's only going to get worse. And I want to be clear here. Trump sucks. Biden has blown it. But this is mostly Congress's fault. This should not be executive actions. This Congress, the Congress before them, the one before them, it's their fault. It's been decades of this shit as incumbents who are terrified of being voted out because of increased immigration, despite every single indicator that immigration made our country and makes our country better, full stop, they've all fucked around and now we're finding out. Crises don't happen overnight. And so here we are, this proven haven for people from across Central and South America, or India, Ukraine, wherever. They want a better life for themselves and their families. These are people who want to contribute, who we need to contribute. But we won't let them in, so the systems we usually rely on from those people are on the brink. So whether you have long COVID, or you get COVID for the first or the third time, or literally get sick or injured really any other way, you will continue to feel the effects of a public health system that is in tatters, as one-third of existing public health workers are planning on leaving their jobs over the next year. Now look, there's people trying to help to make this more incentivized. Senator Tim Kaine introduced a new bill to provide better pay, better benefits, real training, and actual career advancement opportunities for direct care workers, but it's still just a bill. And one way or another, we simply do not have enough people to actually do the job. The last thing that's going to be affected is all of the things, which is politics. You may have noticed that we are increasingly divided as states venture in very, very different directions on everything. Someone polled voters recently, and those voters said among all the new lawmakers' many priorities, COVID should be ranked last. And that is both reductive and self-defeating because, like climate change, COVID touches everything and everyone. That's how a virus works. It touches immigration and politics. Immigration will undoubtedly play an enormous role in campaigns and elections at every level, as even progressive sanctuary cities like Chicago are furious with the president and Congress for their ineffective patchwork policies. And if another real variant does come around, you may be surprised at how many of the public health abilities and laws and policies and such states relied on the last time have been outright banned by the Republican-led state legislatures all over the country. So, look, here's what we've learned. And yes, I'm grasping at straws, but we have learned some stuff. We've learned that wastewater monitoring is amazing, and we should do much, much more of it, and not just for COVID. The CDC's National Wastewater Surveillance System now covers 138 million or so Americans and provides leading indicators, leading indicators, for everything from COVID to the norovirus, which is terrible, and more. 
Translating all that data under continually changing conditions will be a priority as we hopefully rebuild public health around wellness and prevention. What else have we learned? Well, mRNA vaccines are amazing, and scientists have expanded the platform to go after prostate cancer next, which is fucking awesome. We know, again, that the child tax credits worked so, so well. We should do more of those, and it's mostly what I think about every day. Our healthcare institutions clearly shouldn't be run by doctors. They should be run by people who have broad skills and experience in sociology and anthropology and local organizing and messaging, and yeah, obviously medicine too. But it's not working the way it's going. We know that collaborative surveillance works, not the Patriot Act creepy kind. Talk about the version that includes epidemiological investigation, contact tracing, again, since the plague, adjusting public health measures on the fly and with real messaging, and a growing, living, breathing organism of modern labs and diagnostics so we don't have to build that shit when this stuff happens. We are pretty sure, by the way, on that note, that COVID doesn't appear to be seasonal. It keeps coming and going in these mini waves, thank God, as it keeps evolving. And that's the thing. We know it's going to keep evolving. We also know that we haven't had a major, you know, hospitals are fucked again mutation in a while, which is great. But as with any virus on earth, every person that's infected is another chance for it to mutate more fundamentally. What haven't we learned? Well, there's myriad policies and practices that weren't working before COVID that we haven't fixed yet. There are ones we did try and never really followed through it on, and ones we're just outright canceling. We're trying to find funding for pandemic preparation and for future pandemic responses. President Biden asked Congress for $88 billion in pandemic preparedness funds. He got zero. Friend of the pod, Sam Scarpino, tried to find a win in all this, and he told NPR that continuing wastewater, traveler screening, and genome sequencing will be important to ensure the infrastructure is maintained for the next time we need it. That's true. On the other hand, Beth Blower, who helped administer the invaluable Johns Hopkins COVID data tractor I relied on every day, told NPR, the moves are further evidence that those investments were always temporary and not part of a long-term strategy to be better public health data stewards. These should be obvious, but apparently they're not because we're not doing them. What else did we not learn? The devastatingly inequitable distribution of vaccines continues. I could go on about that for hours, and good for you, I did, in conversations with Dr. Madhu Karpai and Gail Smith, who ran the program. We are still fucking this up, folks. It is a human rights crime, and it is, again, a choice we're making that is self-defeating. Uh, what else did we not learn? We didn't learn how to do messaging well. It's unclear to me why there was never a movement to recruit our best advertising and marketing people, or our best, I don't know, fiction writers and, and screenwriters to educate our medical leadership, who probably shouldn't also be our public health leadership, on how to convince people to take care of one another. Um, we didn't figure out at-home testing very well. Yeah, we got them home, but look, they don't connect to anything. They're expensive. Uh, they're hard to get. The FDA still exists as a very dysfunctional unit. The infrastructure sucks. The FDA can't handle either the food side or the drug side, much less both. I would love for them to do each one better. And yeah, the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, oversees SNAP, but per the New Yorker, SNAP recipients are expected to lose, on average, about a third of their monthly allotments that they've gotten used to over the past few years if everyone has suffered. 
And again, that's before we find out what happens with the debt ceiling. Good person Senate Agriculture Chairman Debbie Stabenow said this week, I don't know how taking $6 a day away from a mom and her kids or a senior citizen or a person with disabilities or a veteran is a winning strategy for Republicans, Stabenow said. It's just mean. Yeah, and she's right. Indoor air quality. Look, the administration coughed up tens of billions of dollars for schools and offices to improve HVAC systems and air cleaning, but most of the money was never used. We didn't deal with the desperate need for millions of now well-paid, well-insured, trusted community health workers. Again, uh, talking about that, I have a lot more to say about it. It'll come. Here's where it leaves us. Most importantly, we didn't decide that this was the moment to learn how to take care of one another from the ground up, to build new baseline systems that provide a way for everyone to reach higher in good times and as first line of defense in the hard ones. Collectively, for a while at least, we endured this massive unifying threat that tested every medical, economic, societal, political decision we've ever made. And we failed across the board. We crashed down a slalom course of red flags that told us we had to start over and build something far, far better. And in many ways, in a lot of places we did, if temporarily. America has passed through our very own sliding doors or what are those other movies? Um, About Time, The Family Man, one of those eras, Ghost to Christmas Future, whatever. The point is, now we get to choose the future we want. We know how to support each other, however comprehensive our approach to each problem will need to be. So yeah, COVID is over as far as we've known it. This new era starts today, whether we like it or not, as we unwind everything institutionally we've done to fight this thing. This has been an era where so much has changed and so much has not, and there are wild and unpredictable changes to come. And now the news. In climate change news, in Europe, British wind power has overtaken gas and e-bikes are taking over Germany. Number two, the Biden-Harris administration is committing $50 million to fund clean energy solutions in rural America. Number three, we can have the amount of land use needed for renewables in the U.S. Number four, Exxon is in breach of its environmental permit in Guana, according to a high court judge. Fantastic. In COVID news, nearly a million, I mean, Jesus, nearly a million New Yorkers lost at least three loved ones to COVID. Number two, food banks are being hit hard as the pandemic aid expires. And again, you can go to Feeding America to help out with that. In food and water news, Louisiana is publishing report cards for its water systems to improve transparency. Black farmers are getting a $20 million boost. And number three, the farm bill really needs to include funding for indigenous food producers. In health and bio news, the APA has released a health advisory on social media use for kids. Number two, finally, Gay and bisexual men are now eligible to donate blood without having to abstain from sex. Welcome to the 21st fucking century FDA. Number three, a new discovery about T-cells could inspire new anti-tumor treatments. Number four, Google is using AI to improve hearing technology. I know Apple's working on that too. It's great news for everybody who needs it. In computer news, Google search is facing some big AI-related challenges, to say the least. Number two, a lawsuit is threatening the cybersecurity of U.S. critical infrastructure. Why? And number three, we hinted at it. An interactive map from the markup explores what neighborhoods internet providers excluded from fast internet. That's it from this week. Hit subscribe to get next week's issue straight to your feed. To go deeper, visit importantnotimportant.com. 
Thanks for being a part of our community and thanks for giving a shit. Have a great weekend. Thank you.